Hello and welcome to the Delco Skate Park Coalition podcast. The Delco Skate Park Coalition is a nonprofit organization of skate enthusiasts, parents, and disability rights advocates looking to build adaptive and inclusive skate parks in Delaware County, Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Erin Lopez, and we are the podcast that covers all things about skateboarding, skate parks, and not just skate parks, but ADA, accessible, adaptive all wheels, and inclusive skate parks in Delco and beyond. I'm super excited to be speaking with Jamie Godfrey today. Jamie was one of the original members of the Bones Brigade, a skate team led by Stacy Peralta. Jamie traveled across the United States with the Bones Brigade in the late 70s and early 1980s and competed with some of skate history's most well-known skate legends. Jamie, welcome. Thank you, good to be here. So Jamie, if you could, like, tell me when you got your first skateboard, where are you from, where'd you grow up? Give us a little bit about your background there. Um, I, I grew up in Elkins Park here in Pennsylvania. Um, my uh, first uh, initial, you know, l- or I should say where skateboarding started for me, for some reason I'm not really sure, but a lot of the kids in our neighborhood uh, moved to Florida and their parents sold their homes. And in the early days of growing up in my neighborhood, you know, kicked the can and all these kids that were in the neighborhood, a <laughs> lot of like them. like the best game. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We all had a blast and whatnot, but a lot of these kids, for some reason, they all moved to Florida. So I guess Florida, because the waves and the ocean were so close, a lot of these kids would come back to visit other relatives. And two of these kids who moved away to Florida came back with skateboards. And of course they let me try it. And at that point, so they brought their boards back from Florida, and, and they came, came back, back to, to the Elkins old neighborhood. Park. Okay, came, came back. I was near Jenkintown, Elkins Park, Abington is the high school I went to. But uh, they came back with these skateboards, and that was my initial induction into skateboarding. It wasn't, you know, like I had to go get it. But after I tried it, um, I think what I liked about it was the idea of sidewalk surfing. Um, it's so fun. Yeah, uh, it it's just instantly caught on with me. Um, so like the first time you go out there and are, are you borrowing a friend's board or? I was borrowing boards. Yeah. At that point I was just borrowing boards. Did something click with you really like right away when you first started skateboarding? Um, I, yeah, I guess so because, um, it was just totally different than any, you know, it wasn't the hula hoop, which is a little bit before it. Um, the same time period, the yo-yo was like a big, big trend and everybody was doing tricks with yo-yos and impossible tricks. Right. (laughs) Right. So skateboarding was so new to us, but you know, as I've gotten older and done some history, you know, it wasn't like this new sport that started in the seventies. It actually went back into the early fifties actually with people taking off roller skates um, snowboarding kind of experienced the same thing. Everybody thinks, you know, bindings and everything. They had early, early, you know, development. And some of that early development was basically just taking a piece of plywood and taking apart roller skates. And the early skateboards were really scooters because the kids had handles on them. Um, yeah, you that was see some of year. those old photos of like right. the crude sort of, you know, rectangular plank of plywood. Plank of plywood put together. Not um, the safest things to ride. No, and and that that <laughs> you mentioned that not the safest thing to ride. So my first love of skateboarding started via my friends, and when I really wanted a skateboard, 
my mom growing up in Elkins Park wanted me to, you know, play tennis or golf. You know, why skateboarding? What's this thing? You know, she didn't know anything about it. Why, why do you want to go skateboarding? So she wouldn't even go to buy a skateboard with me. And I saved up money, you know, whatever, you know, chores, whatever I was doing around the house. And uh, my aunt, who lived around the corner from us, loved me. And sh she was, you know, kind of like, you know, not going against my mom, but she helped me buy my first skateboard. And I think it was via, I want to see JC Penney's. It was like a big department store that we bought it out of. And I believe it was a Nash skateboard. It had clay wheels. Um, it was just a solid piece of wood that was painted with like a racing stripe down it and these clay wheels on it. And you had mentioned how, you know, they were, they were somewhat dangerous because the clay wheel, if you hit any object on whatever surface, anything, you know, and I'm talking little sand, forget about pebbles, little sand chunks <laughs> yeah. would stop the wheel short. Yep. Just like the shopping cart in the store. And it's like, why is it going to, you know, you look under and there's a kidney bean that you're pushing. Well, that's what a skateboard would do. It would just stop on a dime. And those things locked up and they, they, you'd go flying off of those. Right. Yeah. Right. So unbeknownst to me as, as a kid, you know, at this era, but like skateboarding was becoming such a huge trend throughout not just America, but throughout the world. Very, very quickly in that mid 70 period, skateboarding was this huge craze and a lot of kids were, you know, into it. But at that same period, the doctors are saying there's all these broken wrists coming into the hospitals and, and it got such a bad reputation of being extremely dangerous. So back to my mom, it, it made her like, you know, why don't you play something safe like golf or tennis? And uh, so, so she I, just wasn't into it. She wasn't into it. No, she just didn't understand it, what it was about. All that she saw is, you know, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the, the reports about how dangerous it was. That was her opinion of it. So that kind of, you know, put a damper up on my aunt, you know, ended up taking me to buy a skateboard. So I bought my first skateboard and, uh, you know, so, so my friends went back to Florida and whatnot, but I played around still on the skateboard. But at this, this era, things were changing so rapidly that, you know, if you were just getting in on clay wheels, just a couple months later in your own brain, you think it was years, but it was really just months that all of a sudden there was a urethane wheels that was a game changer because those little bumps in the sand and whatnot, it would roll over them and it would actually grip the surface that you were riding on. So that sidewalk surfing on those clay wheels was really sidewalk slipping. It wasn't surfing. And the, this urethane wheel really changed things. And uh, in those early days, one of the best-selling skateboard trucks was actually a roller skate truck by Chicago. They used them on you know, the roller skating rinks used the exact same trucks that they were selling on these skateboards that were just new. And uh, I was, uh, you know, at that age, uh, you know, when I first started, I was probably nine or 10 years of age the first time I actually stood on a skateboard. But, you know, in that course of time, the urethane wheel came out. And then, you know, my mom, you know, then saw like, he's putting a lot of time and effort into this. And when I was younger, we used to rent a house every year at the shore. Um, for those that don't live in the East Coast, the beach, <laughs> the Jersey Shore, the Jersey Shore. Yeah, the Jersey I, don't know, shore. I don't know why we call it shore. Everybody <laughs> else calls it a beach, but um, and down at the shore, you know, surfing and skateboarding were kind of tied together, and that's how skateboarding really did evolve. Before my era, when the waves were bad, guys would go out and ride their skateboards and sidewalk surf down the streets and carve and do tricks that they were doing on their surfboards and whatnot. So in that era of going to the beach every summer, uh, you know, it became really kind of fun 
two things that I thought were really neat is that first of all, you know, skateboarding on the boardwalk was really kind of cool because, you, you know, one way you're, there was no sound and then you carved the other way and so, it, it, you know, kind of reminds me of uh, the movie The Shining with Red Rum where the girl's riding on the, you know, the, the little big wheel and she goes from the carpet to the floor and it's like and it was really kind of cool the sounds the skateboarder make as it crossed over the boardwalk. Um, but then about like you know very quickly as I got into it my mom also saw my love for it and I started making my own skateboards originally and uh, they were designed after surfboards kind of like so the you shapes start, of them. you start making your own skateboards like at a really young age very or, young probably yeah. 11 or 12 I was actually cutting you know buying a chunk of wood from there was no Home Depot or anything you went to the local Not hardware store right yeah. bought a chunk of wood and stained it and you know, put a lot of time in it. And I, I think that's what my parents saw. They didn't see me really skateboarding like like, like what was going to be my future. They just saw like, wow, he's, he's, you know, it's not just skateboarding. He's also doing woodworking and he's making these boards and he's staining them and, you know, figuring out how to put the trucks on so they're not crooked. Because, you know, first couple skateboards when I mounted the, the, the trucks on, they would go cocky and wouldn't, you know, go the right direction and whatnot. So you have a, a really... A strong interest in it at a really young age and you're it sounds like at a young age you're starting to think about what what kind of board you you want to have like what's going to work for you is you start to build your own and that's like 11 is pretty young to start building your own 11 boards. or 12 years yeah, yeah you, yes and no because like i was saying earlier how quick things were changing and evolving so so you know the companies were also coming out with the similar ideas like we were putting wedges on to put a kicktail on because that's what we saw the magazines at that point, there was, you know, a couple magazines, but they were our Bible and the ads in them and everything that you could ever want for skateboarding was in these magazines. So were you reading things like Thrasher or Skateboarding? No, Thrasher, Thrasher wasn't around yet, skateboarding. No, he, Thrasher was, was when, I, when I stopped skateboarding, Thrasher, came, Thrasher out. came out. So uh, skate, Skateboarder. Skateboarder was the first, and then there's another mag, I can't remember, I think Skateboard Mag, there was another magazine, I can't remember the actual name, um, but they were like, you know, extremely influential. But yeah. they were also, you know, what we didn't realize is the magazines, especially Skateboarder Magazine, was put together by Surfer Publications. So to us, we see, see skateboarding for everybody throughout the world probably saw it the same way. It's like, it's a Southern California sport. Like there's nobody in the magazines that are getting any coverage. And we thought this like isolated, you know, sport that we were into like 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 there was nobody else but it, it was only california that had like you know the kids with the blonde hair but the, i looked the same way i had the blonde hair and it was long and you know peter frampton was becoming pot that was me <laughs> so, so a lot of the stuff that was going on was so early but it was also so quick and high paced that my mom wasn't you know gonna oh let's go buy a, she really liked that i was crafting and doing this um and then i i wish i could remember the exact you know, time frame, but I'm going to say about the time I was like 12 or 13, uh, about 12 years of age, skateboarding was growing so big, you know, exponentially that um, there was hobby stores that started carrying skateboard products because it was just like, that's what it was. It wasn't a sport. And I, I don't like calling skateboarding really a sport. Um, as I've gotten older, I kind of realized that everybody who skateboards, no matter how good or how bad they are, it's like a signature on your check. They all have a signature to their way they skateboard. 
So to me, I look at it more as like an art form that everyone is painting their own painting when they skateboard. The way they carve, the way they use their body, the way their balance works. And as kids get better and they start doing more complicated tricks, each kid can do, you know, for example, like on a ramp, can do an invert totally different than the next guy. And that's what's made skateboarding, I think, really just such a, an infectious thing that you can put your own stamp on something. You can put something that's really yours. But That's a great explanation. I think um, that's something that, I, you know, for someone who grew up in the 70s and 80s and skating, that you really could see that. That's just how kids were skating at the time. Right. You know, they were really sort of, because there was no future in it, you know, when right. we were younger. It was just, you did it because you, you wanted to, because you, you liked to be out there on your skateboard. Um, and yeah, you know, there's no doubt about it. But like, you know, for example, one of the things I regret is all these early skateboards that I made. All, my first skateboard, I have none of that. I have no skateboards whatsoever. From, And some of the skateboards that like I was buying at, at that young age, once I got really into it, and that, that's what I was going to go into. So this hobby store... In Jengatown was called Elliot's, and Elliot's, you know, was once the the precision ball bearings came out, you know, the the seal bearing it's called, it it really became more of a commodity that more people could carry it. Um, but I want to step back to the early days of those, you know, early you know skateboard wheels that most kids have no concept of what the early boards were like, because they've never probably seen one, but. The conical bear bearings that we used, there was eight bearings on each side, 16 bearings in a wheel, and two little cones that kind of held all the bearings in. And uh, that's what roller skates were being used on roller skates, number one. Number two, that's how the clay wheels worked, in the same type of concept. So that was the early skateboard wheel, even with the urethane, it was basically a hub that basically held the bearings in. And if you had them too loose, 16 ball bearings would go down the sewer. So we would, right, we would have like a, a, a vial of extra ball bearings because they were always losing our oh, ball bearings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my always gosh, losing I the bearings. I remember that, yeah. But, and I'm not very good on time frames, but I'm, 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 you know, probably, like I was saying, like when you're young, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, eight years of age and, you know, I've got nine months and 22 days left till I turn nine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're always counting everything down. But the skateboard market was so quick-paced in this era, I can't remember when it went from these conical bear bearings to a sealed precision bearing, but it opened up a whole new avenue that the hobby stores could have a case filled with the wheels, filled with trucks, and filled with you know a wall full of boards. And that's really where my mom started to see, because looking in the magazines, I started to get it more into, instead of just carving and, and, and doing you know, that, that fun sidewalk surfing, the tricks were starting to become more apparent of what's called freestyle. Freestyle is basically on flat surfaces. And that freestyle aspect of skateboarding is still done today. It's a very small part, but uh, a lot of the wizardry that's come out of skateboarding came from that early aspect of yeah, freestyle. Yeah, those are the roots. Your history is is just so completely cool for skateboarding. So, you know, you, you you get into it, you're building your own boats around 11 or 12, and then at what point do you start to take that to a level of, of like, contests? and By 12 or 13, I had won, you know, I think, like, two or three. Like, I was like, you know, I wish I had those trophies. I don't have them. <laughs> but I was, like, one of the top two or three skate freestylers 
on the East Coast. Very quickly after Elliott's opened on Godfrey Avenue, believe it or not, 2nd and Godfrey Avenue, Country Skateboards opened up um, near Cardinal Doherty High School. Um, And the owners of the store were extremely cool people. Jerry Mayonardi and his brother, Make Mayonardi, ran the store. Val, his wife, was, you know, part of the store. But for him, it was like a little sideline business. And um, I'm going to say Jerry is probably now about 70, maybe 68. So he's older than me, but he was a surfer and he kind of saw this wave coming and opened up the skateboard shop in Philadelphia. Um, And you know, at that point, I was getting more and more into freestyle, but I was also going into this, you know, the store like constantly and buying some of the most iconic skateboards. One of the first real skateboards I bought was a GNS Stacy Peralta Warp Tail, and at that time, the Warp Tail was a solid piece of oak, and they bent up the tail with presses, but it, it must have weighed just the deck alone was probably two and a half, three pounds. They were pretty thick, thick solid, really yeah. thick, solid boards. There was a huge contest at a, I, I forget the name of the school, but in Northeast Philly, there was this massive freestyle contest. Was this the first one? This was you... the first big, big contest. And so what year is this? I'm going to say this is probably 75 or 76 in Philadelphia. And I don't know if Country Skateboards was the, you know, the, the people really pushing this contest, um, and putting it together, but they probably were. If they if they weren't the ones solely doing it, they were instrumental in making it happen. I was probably at the time like 12 or 13, and uh, all that I remember is how crowded it was. I mean, it was a lot, a lot of people, and, and you know, anybody my age who was involved in skateboarding or, or, you know, any sport at that time, what was amazing to me is that there was no internet but somehow, some way, you know, Scott's from North Everybody Jersey, finds out people about is from Virginia, things. Connecticut. Like, how do they all know what the <laughs> hell was going on? Like, like me, I, I live in Philadelphia. So, so you know, the, the, and I guess because of like, like newsletters or something that the, the shop owners at that era were smart enough to kind of like connect people to put it all together. Um, but it was strictly a freestyle contest. There was no other element at that point for the contest. So those early contests in like 1975, 1970s, like vert really hadn't been no. invented yet. It's it not that it hadn't been invented, it's that the urethane wheel just started that. So the magazine was showing, for example, Greg Weaver, you know, carving below the light and I think it was 1976 or 19, you know, right in that era, 76, 77, that pools were starting to be played around with the idea we were playing with banks at that point, like, you know, a, a loading dock or something that had some asphalt banks, but Cardinal Doherty, which I mentioned earlier, being so close, had really nice banks. They're still there, and I, I'm pretty sure people still skate at them. Um, so, yeah, you know. The, the, so how do you do in this contest? I, I honestly don't remember. I, you know, it's, you know, it, and I always say this, like, um, I had fun. That's the important thing. Yeah. So, so I, I think, you know. When skateboarding becomes a competition, going back to that idea of a sport, you know, to me, it should be fun. And, you know, once you lose the element of fun, you're losing what skateboarding is all about. So you enter this, this is your first contest. You have a lot of fun doing it. There's a, there's a lot of interest. Do you then, does that set up for you then, um, you know, this, this like kind of drive to do more contests? Um, not necessarily because cause there were so few and far between. Or maybe they weren't because, you know, I'm a young kid and the time's going by to me so slowly, (laughs) but it's really just flying right by. And uh, 
so very soon after that, Country Skateboard started to form a team, and I was on the team. And the owners of the of the skate shop, back to Jerry and Mike May and Artie, were really kind of like pushing the idea of how do we get more people involved in this great new sport, especially now that the technology's growing, that the boards are evolving, that the, the wheels, everything's evolving so rapidly. And I remember we, we did a lot of demos at that point, and one of the demos was at the Philadelphia Car Show, which was like a three-day thing, and we were there, you know, doing this demo. And I think it's really important to realize that, like, how fast these, this, 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 this whole thing, skateboarding, was changing. I mean, it was like it really accelerated very quickly. Yeah, like like you know, you know, and we're not even at the point where the deck started to get wider and there was ramps or, or parks. Even we're still back in that infancy, and around this time is when I believe Carlsbad and a couple of the early early skate parks were just being built and opening. So the contest end of things really didn't kind of you know pan into anything to really become anything that it, it really it made any any difference. Because did you um, start to develop your skills more while you were on um, that team? Oh, no doubt about it. Um, you know, to to I, I should really preface. You know, the team, the people that were on this team, were some of the best skateboarders probably to ever really live. Um, there was the Munns brothers. There was my close friend, he's my oldest living, dearest friend, is Victor Perez, uh, just turned 63, and, you know, we've managed to keep a friendship. The friends that you, and the friendships that you develop, it sounds like, with your teammates, um, are you guys driving each other and pushing your skating, skating together? Are you sort of... Well, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean, skateboarding is definitely a push thing, um, where, where you're, well, first of all, the tricks, just like skateboarding is evolving, so are these tricks. Um, but Mike Jeslowski was an incredible, you know, I always describe him as a savant um, because he was so talented, not just in skateboarding. He was multi-talented. He could like one day be riding a unicycle for the first time and the next day juggling six balls. And, uh, or, you know, at that time... Was uh, he on the team with he was you? On, he was on country skateboards. And uh, he, he blew my mind. Like he was doing at that point... So at that point, GNS Fiberflex came out with their Fiberflex boards, and that was a really big freestyle board. And he was doing on, on the nose of this GNS Fiberflex, nose 360s, like 30, 40, 360s. And like in the magazine, they're talking about people doing 30, 40, and he's doing it. Like, like he is not this West Coast skateboarder. He is from Roxborough, Philadelphia, and incredibly gifted in anything he touches. Just had no no grasp of how good of a skateboarder he really was. And then there's this big contest that took place in Asbury Park. Uh, it was the East Coast Championships for skateboarding. And uh, so we all what went- What year would you ballpark like I'm gonna that? say that was 70, 77 probably. Okay. Um, maybe 78. It's a large enough contest that we can fact check, you know, fact check that and see exactly when it was. But it was a massive contest. Um, and at this point, ramps are starting to become part of competition. But the concept of a ramp was just how high you could go. Um, so it wasn't really a half pipe. It was kind of like one of these ramps where it went up, you know, eight feet. It went up six feet. And in each section that it went, kunk, 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 it was not like smooth and like a transition. It was just gradual. And a lot of what we were doing, you know, at that point was also like we would take a piece of plywood, a four by eight sheet of plywood, and just leaning up against, you know, milk cartons and, you know, try and do bank turns. We were making our own banks and whatnot. 
So this contest was really, really like a big, big deal. And, you know, Mike Jeslowski got first place in freestyle, first place in, you know, ramp. And I, I placed probably in the top two to three. I can't really remember in just freestyle. I didn't enter the ramp contest, I think, at that point. Um, and then shortly after that, in Philadelphia, a skate park opened called Philadelphia Skate Park. We called it PSP, which was at uh, Pratt and uh, and Frankfurt, right where the Frankfurt L was. Uh, um, it was on the two cross streets, but uh, you know, it's basically where the elevated train ends. Uh, Is this the first skate park in Philadelphia? In, in the Philadelphia area, this was the first skate park. There was others before that, and I should maybe step back. There was like Weber Wave over in New Jersey. Uh, I believe Vineland opened in Vineland, New Jersey. There was a couple skate parks throughout, like the the, the South Jersey area. But Philadelphia gets its first first one skate park. With PSP probably seventy seven, late seventy seven. Is it a private skate park? Or yes. Is it, okay. Yes, there's no such thing as public skate parks at all back then. Everything was private. Um, and uh, businessmen, you know, they saw the growth of the skateboard market, how many skateboards are being sold and how quickly people are getting into the sport. So when the skate park started to, you know, become more apparent, um, there's a great book uh, that was written, uh, The History of the Ollie, that goes into a lot of history that I didn't even know. Like, like for example, at this time of like early, early skate parks, there was like 2,500 skate parks throughout the United States. And, you know, some of them are only around for six months and some are around for two or three years. And I was so surprised to read that, you know, because I grew up out on the West Coast. But when I saw the the longevity of some of these East Coast skate parks that were constructed in like the late 70s. And I think there was one in New York, um, a sonic wave yep. that was only around for maybe 18 months. My close friend Mark Ryder, that's where he would skateboard at. So PSP in Philadelphia, you start to skate there. I start to skate there. Does that change your skating, having oh, like yeah, different having, terrain? Have, not only, ha it was you know the first real concrete you know skate park, but I have to preface it and say the park sucked. I mean, it was so bad. <laughs> Tell and me why it was bad. What what was wrong with well, the, some of those early parks? It was built by non-skateboarders, first of all. Um, they could tell that, you know, as they were building the skate park, that a lot of the design was just like way off. They had like this small little half pipe that would drop into, I think the bowl was like 18 feet. It had like four feet of vert on it. So the half pipe at the shallow end was two feet and then it goes into this 18 foot math, massive bowl. So they decided that since it was so big, they just put a big, big mound of concrete so you could get speed to drop into this huge, massive, I mean, it was just beyond, and I was a young kid, so it's, to me it was beyond comprehension. And then the opposite aspect, it had a small little pool where they had a window right there at the bus stop so people could see people skating the bowl. But the bowl was only like five feet deep. It had coping and tiles. So it was like the opposite. It was like really small and teeny and it had a snake run through it. And it also, most skate parks in this era all had a freestyle area, a small area that was just flat ground because um, freestyle was still an integral part of skateboarding. It was um, like really popular when you see a lot of the early images. Of, right. Like I think it was Stacy Peralta's on Charlie's Angels. Yes. I remember yes. that episode. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> And he's doing some freestyle move with Farrah Fawcett or yep. something like that. Yep. Yeah, so it was really, really popular. Wearing, wearing his GNS, you know, yeah. shirt and everything, <laughs> and his headband. And, so um, after PSP, do you do you start to skate in different private parks that start to come in the area? 
Yes, because because uh, at that point the competition started. You know, first of all, my mom was more behind my skateboarding. You know, I have to bring my mom into this because she was integral in helping me. You know, how did I get to all these contests? My mom, and uh, so she was really supportive. Right. So so. Um, and I believe I was still riding with country at that point, but I would go to like Vineland, um, and, I, and I remember like these hot summer days, and you know, drinking soda all day long and being amped up. And also, the great thing that skateboarding always does. Yeah, it, there was no Red Bull back then. <laughs> it was just you got a Pepsi. No, yeah, no energy <laughs> drinks. But but also the great thing about it is that I started meeting other people from other skate parks, which really started us all becoming more closer as, as a network. So your network gets broader gets as you're broader. going to these different skate unlike, parks. Unlike, you know, when you go to you know elementary school, then into junior high, then it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like you're following the same people. And and I think most schools are very homogenous in the, on the demographic, ex, you know, most people are like you. Um, so you start to interact with different people from different areas at these skate parks. Um, when does Cherry Hill start to come into your, so, your skate history? So Cherry Hill, I believe, was opened in early 78, if not late 77. Um, but I was privileged because at that time I was riding PSP. Mike Jeslowski, back to Mike Jeslowski, he was the resident pro. Um, he actually went pro at that point. And uh, uh, when they opened, because he, he you know, I, I mentioned her, I mean, he was just so incredible. So, you know, now I, I'm friends with like so many people that are like legends of skateboarding. Like, for example, Dale Smith was like one of the early pioneers of freestyling and developing wheels just to spin 360s and stuff like that. And Mike was like learning from him and coordinating with him and picking up all these things. So when P Cherry Hill was being built, we heard about it. And my mom being the mom she was, I'm pretty sure it was her. I think she drove me and Victor to see the, the park. And I met Larry McDonald and uh, Bob Bigelow, I think. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Wally Holiday, Larry McDonald and Bob Bigelow. They're the ones who actually built and designed Cherry Hill. And I was like a young kid. So to me, it was like, you know, so just like PSP, which was an indoor skate park, so is Cherry Hill. So when you think of indoor skate parks, we thought of like PSP, which is, you know, I'm going to say maybe it was 18,000, 15,000 square feet, maybe 20 at that point. Um, but these skate parks at that point were, first of all, they were, like I said, they weren't built by skateboarders. So when we walked into Cherry Hill and see what they were doing, they only at that point didn't have the finished coats on the bowls, but we could see the pools and whatnot. And we were just blown away. I was like, oh my God, like, look at this place. I've seen some old footage of people skating Cherry Hill and, you know, because the, they tore it down. It's not there anymore. Right. Um, just the different bowls and how it's laid out and... It looked like it was maybe more because I never skated there, but it looked like it was maybe more of one of the the better designs of the time. Oh, it it was. Um, I'll I'll get into that, but not only was it one of the better designs. Um, now now when they build skate parks, you're using CAD CAM computers. They lay out the bowls in sections and they pour the bowls in sections so they come out more precise. Cherry Hill was a one pour, and what that means is they rebarbed everything and then they poured the concrete. There was no second chances to make anything right. 
And just to briefly, you know, describe the terrain of Cherry Hill, it had its freestyle area that was maybe about like 6,000 square feet, um, maybe a little less. And then it had like a small little flow bowl that was only maybe three and a half feet high, shaped like an L. And then from there, they had, it was designed as a slalom course because it had banks on both sides and it went into a bowl at the end. But from there, it had like a step up and the step up was the infamous egg bowl, which was, I think, 13 and a half feet deep. But it was a one poor pool with two feet of vert on it. But to this day and age, after all the parks that I've ridden, I know there's thousands of great skate parks out there now. It is still probably one of the best pools I've ever ridden, um, even to this day. And it, a it's, lot of people that I talk to have such fond memories of Cherry Hill. So, so it had this great, huge, big bowl. And I'm also still a grom at this point. Um, and uh, the next pool was a keyhole. And the keyhole had a kink in it in one wall. But, in, 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 you know, if we had that keyhole today, we would be like, oh, my God. And that was about probably a, tw uh, a, a 10 feet, I would say, probably deep. Beautiful channel that you could do channel airs over and stuff. And then they had a very small left-hand kidney um, and then a right-hand kidney. And this is the year also, like, my younger brother at that time started to get into skateboarding, too. But when Cherry Hill opened, I just changed my gears and said, you know, that old skate park, PSP, kind of sucks. I'm going on to, to ride at Cherry Hill. So that, um, that experience, so that your mom takes you there to see it, you see what's coming, and then it gets, it gets opened, and you start to skate it, and it, it changes the game for you. Oh, and not only does it change the game, the grand opening, Cherry Hill invited you know, the, the legends of skateboarding. It was Tony Alva, Jay Adams, Brad Bowman, Doug DeMontmorency, um, was the first wave, Chris Stropel, Tay Hunt, um, uh, Bobby Valdez. And this is over the course of like, maybe like a two week period that like a bunch of these pros come in. Are you there? I'm, I'm there. But to see these guys in three dimension riding the skate park, because I was a total grom at this point, um, you know, I was, you know, awkward, you know, a ganky little teenager for lack of a better term. But um, it really, you know, just changed my perspective. Number one, I started looking at not, not the tricks I was doing, but the style and, and form of how I skated. And I was being heavily influenced by seeing these guys, not from the magazines now, seeing them actually in real life, in person there at Cherry Hill. Was there one of them, because, you know, these are some of the more well-known skaters from that time. Was there one of them that particularly stood out as being the most influential for you in terms of their style, um, you know, how how they were skating? I, well, I can, or was I, it I, all of them? Yeah, I, I can go on, a, you know, because what happened is, is that grand opening, all these pros went back to California and they were like, dude, our parks suck. And I thought at this point that, you know, California had the best skate parks. I'm riding Cherry Hill, like thinking like, that egg bowl's too big for me to really do very much. And I'm gonna ride the right-hand kidney, which was a beautiful, like unbelievable kidney. The half pipe was fantastic. So so I'm honing my skills, but in the meantime, all these, you know, top-notch, you know, the, the legends of skateboarding, for lack of a better term, all go back to California. And they're like, you gotta, you gotta come out, you know, to, you know, and, and so. Pro, oh, so they start telling people. They start out telling there, people the place to skate is Cherry right. Hill, New Jersey. So, right, and then you know, so so what happened is not only did they tell people, they were telling their manufacturers like, oh, don't pay me this year, just get me a plane ticket to go back east, 
you know, Steve Olson, you know, Brad Bowman, you know, I, I, I mean, the names are just like incredible to, for me to like remember all of these people and like what they were doing at the park at that time. Because we talked about how the technology of skateboarding was changing. Well, now with all this new technology that was changing, so are the tricks and the maneuvers. So very, very quickly, this progression is happening. And as this progression is happening, I'm getting more mature and growing and getting a little more muscle mass and, you know, really kind of honing my own skills. Um, and at that point, um, I, you know, w was asked by a guy out of Virginia Beach to ride for a company called PowerFlex. At that point, you get asked to be sponsored by this company. So how old are you about? I, I'd say I was 14 at that time. Um, how did that, you know, play out with your mom? <laughs> she go home and say, oh, no, I'm no, skating no. today. And... She was she was driving yeah. me every day. My mom was driving me every day. So she, 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 not only was she... Was she, was... like, super thrilled, like, that you got... Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just to backtrack a little, my mom was a very supportive parent, you know, so she was she was driving me every day to Cherry Hills, a 45-minute drive each way. And the only way I would get to the skate park is if my homework was done, I would get my homework done, and then we would take off to go to the skate park, and the skate park would be open, you know, till like 10 o'clock at night, and we would close it down, I'd drive home and do the same thing, you know, probably five days a week, I'd be going to the so skate park. So she's taking you there five days a week to Cherry Hill? Pretty much, pretty much. And that, that was once I got sponsored, and she saw how things were progressing. Okay. And she also, this guy, Rusty Harris, uh, who, you know, was sponsoring me, she got to know him, so she started to see that like there was, she wasn't the only parent like taking an interest in this, this new developing sport. I mean, there's magazines. It's not like this is, you know, like just like ten people. There's there's millions of people throughout the world that are skateboarding, and uh, no, it gets really popular at right. that time. So, so Cherry Hill, though, back to how like how did everybody find out? So all over the East Coast, word is spreading that this skate park is like like nothing else. And it's indoors. I have to keep on saying that because all the skate parks at that point were most of them were outdoors. And there was tons of them in Florida. There was all over North Carolina. I mean, they were all over these skate parks. But the good skateboarders somehow found out and were making these pilgrimages to come to this mecca to find Cherry Hill. And, you know, guys from Connecticut and Rhode Island and New Hampshire and and Florida and whatnot, they, you know, were coming to the skate park and all of us, you know, were progressing at, at such a, because the tricks were progressing and the, and the pros, Shogo Kubo, for example, who's one of the legends of Dogtown, the first time he came to Cherry Hill, he stayed. He spent like almost a year living at Cherry Hill. He had no reason to go back to live in, you know, I think he's from Venice and, you know, he had no reason, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a skateboard star. Nobody knows me. I can go hang out in this pool all day long and have it all to myself and, you know, don't have to sign autographs because after the grand opening, he just fit right into the scene. We just, you know, and he became very influential once again to me, you know, watching him skate, his style, the maneuvers he was doing. And, you know, he was a big help to me. So the, the pro skaters come to Cherry Hill and then the photographers start to follow. Yeah, well, well, there was also a key photographer here in the East Coast, Glenn Friedman, Glenn E. Friedman, we should call him, was uh, instrumental in, in having a vision because he was there in the early, as a young kid, I, I, I don't know how old Glenn was at that point, but he was there at the Dogtown or Dog Bowl taking pictures of Jay Adams and you know, all these, you know, mega, mega dudes at that early, early, you know, point of skateboarding. So he was coming down to Cherry Hill to take skateboard pictures. And when the grand opening, he was there, to, you know, photographing a lot of this. And, you know, so he was really instrumental. That was also like the key way that 
skateboarder magazine started to realize that wait a second the talent is not just in southern california and it took that long really even though it is you know we're talking four years but in skateboarding terms four years at that point was like we're going from clay wheels to forget about loose ball bearings we're, we're doing hand plants in pools i mean it went that quickly from a to b when you get sponsored and your skating is really starting to develop and take off um what does that mean in terms of going to like more contests or do you just after you're sponsored continue to skate cherry hill and just get better on I that ju- terrain i just kept on skating at cherry hill um and cherry hill though to spread the word of cherry hill uh, a guy named hank shawty uh from like the cherry hill area had a minivan and my mom and like about like eight other kids all went on a skateboard tour to like Virginia to like Crofton and Maryland and all these skate parks that were you know sprinkled around in I'm just going to say about an eight nine hour radius we ended up doing a demo at some point in uh in in like Virginia and like where where, uh Tennessee like in Skyline Drive somebody had a ramp and we just pulled in and you know you know skateboarding on the ramp and stuff so we were also spreading the gospel of the Mecca so to say about Cherry Hill and Cherry Hill I think paid for him to fill up with gas and take this road trip to to tell people because I I don't know if we were quote-unquote on the Cherry Hill team or what but just a bunch of us went on this trip and so that was another way that we could kind of spread what was going on with cherry hill was there um a point where cherry hill starts to have their own contests uh yeah and the contests were very similar to what had already been out there they were more east coast centered um they weren't pro contest um and it wasn't till you know a, a little time later that pro contest actually it was henry hester who, who started the first pro contest called the hester series and uh, I was still on PowerFlex at that time, but um, Bobby Valdez is, is the individual who invented the hand plant. And I was like so stuck. I'm like, Bobby Valdez, he invented the hand plant. Like, I'm riding for the same company. And they make great wheels. And, you know, so I was really psyched on that. And Tell me a little bit about, you know, just for, for people who might be kind of, or maybe kids who are listening to this podcast who might be a little bit new to skateboarding. Like, tell me a little bit about the hand plant as a maneuver. It was it was groundbreaking because it was taking you know the 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 Dogtown guys like Tony Alvin, Jay Adams, and whatnot. They were in backyard pools, starting to monkey with actually getting out of the pool, actually doing an aerial where they're leaving the bowl and re-entering the bowl. And you know I said that earlier. We thought they were all bales. Nobody made anything, and but we saw them in action to actually do these things. And at this time, photography was also starting to create sequential fo- photographs. Because it was really important that people could see, like, they're really doing this. You know? And by the sequential photograph, you mean from when they start to take on take the move? Off, when they and you see them land. And you see them at right. the end of it. So it's like a series of, like, maybe five or six photographs of, of the same maneuver, but you're getting the sequence right. of it. Right. It's literally, if you could look at, like, a movie tape, that's what you'd be looking at when they're printing it, individual pictures of a movie. Um, and that's how they were able to get those into the magazine. Correct, correct. So Bobby Valdez, what a hand plant was, was literally going up a vertical wall, planting your hand on the wall and actually extending your body out of the bowl and, you know, you're upside down basically and coming back into the bowl. So he was the early inventors of that. And, and these type of maneuvers also spawned, you know, not long after that, Eddie Elgara did the first frontside hand plant and, 
you know, rock and rolls. Well, Eddie Aguirre did the first front frontside. You know, it's Kent Senator. There's a lot. You know, who who did these tricks? You know, is is really controversial. The first one, I don't want to say who did because I hear different stories about who did and who didn't. But how did so? Kind of coming back to your skating, how this starts because you're you're around. You're in. And, and on you know you're going there every day five days a week to Cherry Hill you're around this this amazing group of skaters that right. are doing and accomplishing you know not just the stuff that you're seeing in skateboarder but new stuff like new stuff is starting to happen right. and they're pushing each other so it's got to have a big impact on your own skating as well um, and I think kind of the the big question that like a lot of listeners have about your skate history is when your skate boarding gets developed enough that you catch the attention of the Pal Peralta team. Mike Jaslowski was still, you know, the, the, the resident pro for PSP, Philadelphia Skate Park. And PSP invited Stacy Peralta to come to a demo for PSP. And uh, and right away when Stacy Peralta saw Mike Jaslowski, he asked him to ride for them. And Mike would come to Cherry Hill now and then, my mom being the skate mom, a lot of times she would pick him up and drive him, and Victor Perez, the same thing, these lifelong people and friends of mine. I have to say right now, I, I didn't get to meet your mom in person, but I love your mom. <laughs> I loved her dearly because she, she, you know, she set, That's she set really me up. Cool. Yeah, she, you know, you know, and and also the way I, I, I deal with my own kids, I kind of think about, you know, what my mom did and how she slaved for her kids to see them do what they wanted she to was do. Into it, yeah. Well, she, she, she sacrificed a lot yeah. to do to do for me. Um, but um, so, so she's driving. She's, she's driving, driving. Sometimes she drive these because you know we go back to you know years into country skateboards. Mike, you know, Victor. And, you know, my, my, my younger brother, Dean, at this point is skateboarding, you know, so he's fully hooked on skateboarding, too. And I guess from my mom's standpoint, it's like, great, you know, I don't have a babysitter or anything. I just let them go in the skate park. And we were there for, you know, there was days where we ride for 12 hours a day. Um, I don't know how we did it, but we skateboarded literally day in and day out. And uh, Actually sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> so, so Mike Jaslowski, you know, the interesting thing about the Bones the quote-unquote Bones Brigade, when Stacy Peralta, who to me was already back in that era, you know, was a legend to begin with. He was the number one selling skateboard model with his GNS Warptail, that early board. I don't think Stacy got the same credit he was due in that era because there was no attitude about him. He was just a skateboarder. And the stuff he was doing on a skateboard was very unique and very, very individualistic and the way he did it and his approach to skateboarding. And when he developed his team, of course, I know more about this now because when he asked me to ride for him, it was like, yeah, you know, you know, well, I, I, it wasn't that simple, but um, he, you know, you know, wanted to create a team because at that point, George Powell was making wheels. He had a, a you know, a, a deck out, but the company wasn't really doing anything. The wheels were somewhat successful. And the first Bone Brigade rider, Bones Brigade rider, was Ray Bones Rodriguez. We all called him Bones because he was the first rider riding on Bones wheels. And Bones, the term came from because the wheels were white, and it was the best urethane formula coming out. Of, you know, back to, back to how things change so quickly. That was the wheel. So Ray Bones was a huge, huge influence on me for style and also just the way he rode, but. To come back to it, so, so I'm not sure Stacy Peralta came while he was doing this demo 
at PSP or went home and then shortly later came back and came to Cherry Hill. But Mike Jaslowski had already said to, to Stacy Peralta, hey, you got to check out this guy, Jamie Godfrey, because he's somebody to look at. And uh, so Stacy was handpicking people throughout the country where the company probably could have said, I'm going to get Steve Olson to, to ride for Pal Peralta, or I'm going to get Tony Alva to ride and just pay him a lot of money. I think and I saw in a um, documentary about Bones Brigade, Stacy Peralta says that his philosophy at the time was that he wasn't looking for the big names. He really no. wanted to find um, all of people, us were no names. All of us were no names. Like with a lot of like Mike McGill was a, and, Mike McGill is a serious you know good skater at that point, the same age as me. Alan Gelfin had already the Ollie, but kind of Stacy, I think, kept it under wraps a little bit because that, that Ollie trick was fascinating and whatnot, but he kind of kept it like, you know, because he wanted the photographers on the West Coast to see it. And the first photographer to really see it and really alert Stacy Peralta about what was going on in Florida was Jim Goodrich. Um, Jim Goodrich was one of the early day photographers at Skateboarder Magazine. And he was the one who probably let the cat out of the bag that there's this great skate park going on up at Cherry Hill. And, you know, Steve Sherman, Clyde Rogers, you know, a, a plethora, you know, the Clyde slide, you know, all these guys kept coming, you know, coming up. But but that was what Stacy said uh, in this documentary was really important to him was, you know, he was he was almost thinking more than who's good now. It's who's going gonna be, to who's be good. Who's going to be good. Right. In this changing, radically changing era. So when Stacy said to me, coming to Cherry Hill, he goes, hey, I really like what you're doing. You're doing a lot of innovative stuff. You've got incredible style. You look like you're not even you know, moving to get around the bowl. You're so calm and effortless in the way you skateboard. I said, you know, I really like it. You know, I said, you know, I'm riding for Powerflex right now, and Rusty Harris has been really you know, my mentor and whatnot. And I, I, I would love to say yes right here and now because you're an idol of mine. Like, holy smokes, this company, Pal Peralta, like, the, you know, you know, I knew about the Bones wheels, but I didn't really know much else. But, you know, they, those two coming together, you know, the boards were still flat planks of wood. There was no concaves in the board. But Stacy had kind of like an idea and concept. And at the same time, things were getting kind of like... Uh, uh, fluorescent and psychedelic in a way. Yeah, the, the decks were starting decks, to change. Decks were bright and, and logos and whatnot. And so you could see that coming out from Pal, like Stacy was riding on what's called a Beamer. Um, it was a, a you know really innovative board that had really thin plies of wood on it with these beams that ran down the middle. I got to ask though, Jamie, you're, you're you know, a young guy, you're, you're doing what you love. And then you get asked by Stacy Peralta to go and join the Bones Brigade. How did you feel about like was that kind of like I, oh my god? Like, well, is- well, it, it was like <laughs> oh my god, yes. But but what what made it even more like oh my god was to go to Rusty Harris and said hey you know Rusty he was coming up every weekend from Virginia Beach. This is like an eight and a half hour drive probably to come all the way to Cherry Hill. It's a long drive. With a group of kids from all those skate parks that we were doing demos, you know, Crofton and whatnot down in Maryland. All those kids were coming to Cherry Hill like every single weekend. So, and and, and my house became like kind of the floor to sleep on. They would come on Friday and go home on, on Monday, you know, during the summer and they would just crash in our floor. We had, you know, our floor, you know, in our living room, we had, you know, fairly large, you know, home, but like there was no furniture in the living room. So everybody just camped out in the living room. So your mom is not only driving people oh, yeah. places like she, we're she's, staying at, yeah, at we're staying in the Godfrey Mrs. house. Mrs. Godfrey's right. house. <laughs> right. 
and same you know same thing someone. later on but but so uh so stacy stacy asked, asked me you, and then i asked rusty i go to rusty i said hey you know um so stacy peralta came to me he he wants me to ride for this new company's developing pal peralta and and, and and without even saying he goes, oh my god he hugs me he's like that's the greatest thing i've ever heard oh my god like stacy so so to me it was kind of like like kind of like he was passing the torch on saying I, I'm so proud and glad to hear that like you're making the next move in life that you're moving on and it really you know like like it welled me up that kind of like it still makes, looks it like, still yeah, makes it still me well up, up. Kind of yeah like, oh, it sounds like he was really happy for he you. was really really psyched for me because uh, you know he was really psyched about skateboarding at that point and I mean bringing these kids who's part of like a 4-H club or something and he saw like what skateboarding could do for kids that especially kids who are somewhat lost I don't play football, I don't play basketball, but skateboarding allows people to be individuals and the sport is evolving. It allows people to find different evolution throughout whatever's going on. Um, so at that point that Rusty says, this is a great opportunity for you, um, do you go back to Stacy and say, yeah, I'm gonna oh, do I, I called him like 10 seconds later, <laughs> like, like, you know, first of all, Mike Jeslowski was already riding for them and that Beamer model I discussed Mike Jeslowski was developing really the first rock and roll board slide. So that beam that ran down the middle had fiberglass layers on it and allowed his board to slide a lot further. So uh, Doug Saladino, uh, who's now become a good friend of mine at that era, I was a grum. Like I didn't, you know, like I didn't even say hello to Doug Saladino. I was just like, oh my God, that's Doug Saladino. I've seen him all in the magazine. Oh my God, like that's Pine, man. But. <laughs> Pineapple saw him doing the rock and roll board slide, and a lot of people think like he was the one doing it further because he got like the trick tip on how to do it. But Mike Jaslowski was doing them, you know, way way further. And whenever you read anything, this is why you know I think good people, Doug Saladino. Whenever he mentions, oh, Mike Jaslowski is the one who really taught me how to take that trick to what it was. So we are going to take a quick break, and we will be right back after this message. Are you interested in helping Delco get a new ADA accessible all wheels concrete skate park? Please go to the Delco Skate Park Coalition website at www.skatedelco.org to find out more about current Delco Skate Park projects, events, and how you can help support the Delco Skate Park Coalition's mission. So what was it like, you know, coming back from the break, you were just, you were talking about um, what it was like to skate with Mike, your, your good friend on the Pal Peralta team. So, so it, it was interesting because Mike, Mike and I go back to like riding for country skateboards, now coming full circle to, to being on the Bones Brigade. And that term, the Bones Brigade, really didn't mean very much because we were just a group of amateurs. We were all amateurs, except Mike was pro. Um, and... Uh, so the, the competition situation didn't really begin till the Bones Brigade was starting to kind of be put together. And on the team, there was two kids from Northern California, Stevie Caballero and Scott Faust. Uh, down in San Diego, there was David Zakarinsky, Teddy Bennett, uh, Ray Bones Rodriguez, who I had already mentioned, uh, Rodney Mullen from Florida, you know, one of the most innovative skateboarders to ever, you know, skateboard. Um, Mike McGill, Alan Gelfin, who invented the Ollie. So, so skateboarding, you know, we should also preface, skateboarding had evolved to such a point. Now there's skate parks like, you know, Cherry Hill, Del Mar, 
Upland, Marina del Rey in California that are like some of the best, you know, big O, there's some great skate parks. And as these great skate parks are being developed, probably right around the time that I was just getting on the Peralta team, there was the Hester series and Henry Hester, who, you know, was integral in, you know, skateboard products in the whole industry from the early racing days where they would make like these race cars to shoot down hills to spank slalom and Lacoste and stuff. So that first contest series that he did was, you know, a couple different skate parks. I, I wasn't part of it, but that was like the real formation of actually skateboarding contests. And it gave content for Skateboard Magazine to really, you know, here's Mickey and Steve Alba, for example, and, you know, you know, Chris Stropel doing, you know, because the contest, they were pulling out these tricks like an alley-oop, like, holy smokes, it's a, you know, coming up frontside and doing a backside air and coming in. Like, it, it, it was incredible, some of the stuff, but the contest really kind of focused on that. So you're skating with um, these, these folks that are, like, in the early days of their skate career, go on to do... No doubt. About, so I hadn't met them yet. So So... so so the only ones I met was Alan Gelfin and Mike McGill because of Cherry Hill. They came up for one of the contests going on and we rode at that contest. But then very shortly after the Gold Cup series was, uh, you know, erect or, you know, came to be. And the Gold Cup series was kind of a changing of the guard if, if you look at skateboard history, because at that point, Steve Olson, Jay Adams, those guys are getting older. Um, usually, especially, you know, in most kids' cycle of skateboarding, they got into the sport like when they were 12 or 13, and then 16, they get a car and girls, and it kind of fades away, skateboarding, unless you're super passionate about it. And I think for a lot of these pros, what, what was happening is they came into the sport. The Bones Brigade was one of the first skateboard teams where most of us were not surfers. So Ray Bones Rodriguez was a surfer, and... And Stacy Peralta was a surfer, and I, I I really don't I'm trying to think. But the rest of you, I think that's a really kind of key distinction in skate history is that the rest of you on that team got into skateboarding to get skateboarding, into skateboarding just to get into skateboarding, correct? And that was a real big change. Stacy Peralta wasn't pressuring us to compete, wasn't pressuring us to do tricks. He put us on the team because he saw our individuality and uniqueness. In some cases, on a skateboard, but also, in some cases, just on who we were. He said at the, at the time that they did this Bones Brigade documentary that um, he, he was looking for the innovative kind of uh, skating, but also just in terms of, of who people were, like how driven they were. And I think he had said that, you know, he, he sometimes reflected that the, the skating that the amateurs were doing was in some ways so much more innovative than what the pros were doing. Right, and that, that that's what I meant about like there was a changing of the guard. So a lot of the older pros, when all these tricks were being developed, we were young and agile. So we were picking them up quicker than the guys who are 18, 19 now, when we were 15, you know, 14, 15, and 16. So this was even pushing the progression even that much faster of what was going on. Um, but then when the, the Gold Cup series started, that was the first experience. I went out with Mike Jeslowski to go out to, to, to California with him. My mom being the concerned mom, knew Mike very well, that he was, you know, who was going to travel with. And we stayed with somebody who lived near Marina Del Rey. And a lot of this is somewhat foggy of how it took place, but I was probably 14 at the time. And I don't think I was competing at that point. It was just my first experience going out to California and uh, being immersed in Marina Del Rey and all these parks near Stacy and whatnot. 
But then the Gold Cup series was coming, and Stacy, um, not all of us competed. And Mike Jaslowski, his freestyle was, you know, unbelievably strong and incredible. He was built more like a swimmer. He had thighs that were super big, really big upper body. He's just a powerful, you know, guy, but he, he didn't have that like slender kind of like agile agility that you would think a skateboarder would have. But he was incredible at what he did know. And Stacy didn't, you know, hey, you gotta, you gotta go to the Gold Cup Series. So Mike wasn't competing in the Gold Cup Series with me. And I think some of his skating faded away because he wasn't getting the recognition. Since he didn't have that style, he wasn't getting the photographs. The, the opportunities, it sounds like, to advance really came from that, that sort of that luck of just being, being in the, in the right, right place at the right time. Yeah. And, and that, that was it for me. You know, you know, I was at the right place. If Mike Jaslowski didn't tell Stacy to take a look at me, Stacy probably would have not taken a look at me. It's funny when I look back and kind of think about things, you know, just to like kind of like Tony Hawk wasn't part of the original Bones Brigade, but I did compete against him. So Tony now is 54, I believe. And at his age, you know, I remember he was like a small little gankly little kid. Let me ask you this. So you're 14, you're on the Bones Brigade team at that point, and you start going to California. Um, what's that like for you? It, it was kind of, you know, it, it was hard because, you know, first of all, um, so many people wanted to be on the Bones Brigade as like the Bones Brigade was becoming the Bones Brigade, and we were all given our yellow shirts with the two bombs on the sleeve, and, you know, it said Bones Brigade with the bomber plane on it it was becoming apparent that like these guys are like the real deal, but we're all amateurs. I mean, you know, I shouldn't say all of us, but pretty much all of us on that team were amateurs. And uh, these contests were open, open contest. So you didn't have to be pro, you just competed in it. And uh, it was tough for me because I was from the East Coast and people expected like, he's on the Bounce Brigade. And, and it was hard to kind of like make friends of people, I think, because I was close-knit with Steve and Mike and, you know, a couple other people because we were all we were all about the same age. And then I just started realizing we're having a blast, like hanging out yeah. with Lance Mountain and, you know, John Lucero at Whittier and, and the jokes and the fun. and They were fun. Oh, they were fun uh, to hang out these, with. These guys were awesome. They were, you know, and, and, you know, even Stevie, like we, we would, you know, so, so since not all of us were in the same competitive mode, uh, Scott Foss, for example, didn't come down to all the contests that were happening and wasn't really part of that element. And since we lived far away, we would all stay at Stacy's house. And, you know, if the contest was at Colton, we would probably wake up in the morning and, you know, we would go down to Mar Vista, you know, bowling alley and have breakfast there and be goofy and have fun and all kind of annex that 14, 50 year old kids would have. You know, it was basically me, Mike, and Steve that lived there because not everybody, you know, Alan Gelfin also didn't like to compete. So he wasn't in that competition mode. And, and that was Stacy. Stacy saw our talents and didn't really push that, you know, competitive end. He pushed really the internal end. And um, I, I How mentioned- How do you feel about that now? Oh, I, I mentioned this a lot to people because it's kind of one of, you know, Stacy said this to me when I first went out to California. He said, and I noticed how Stacy rode. Stacy would, a lot of times when he went to a skate park, he would look at different features in a skate park and a lot of times ride the feature that like nobody else was riding it. You know, was it bunk? Did it have kinks? Whatever. He would go ride that. And he said to me, he said, 
the person who rides their home skate park and kills it and has all the lines in their home skate park and then goes to another skate park and can't do jack is not really a good skateboarder. It's the guy who goes to a skate park and really shines and maybe just one element that no one's ever done in that park and that philosophy I really kind of hold true and I try and impress my kids with that, that like you need to look a little bit deeper into something, not just look at what, you know, and coming from Cherry Hill, which was such a great skate park, it was really hard for me to kind of like harbor that that thought. And I would always think about it when I competed that like, I'm gonna do what Stacy said, I'm gonna come up with a new trick or I'm gonna try and look at a new line in the pool and not worry what like the other competitors are doing, but think more about what I'm doing. So it was one thing I really took away that I really found, you know, have fond memories of. But Stacy sounds like he's offered you something really cool that you still carry with you to this day was just this wisdom of focusing your energy on yourself and growing kind of internally through the experience of going to these different parks what are you going to get out of each one don't 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 sing or leave don't you know you're you're only as good you know as 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 you can make yourself be and shine any anywhere you go was there a time when you were traveling with Bones Brigade and you're learning a lot about yourself and it sounds like Stacy kind of challenges you to start to think about yourself and learn about yourself not only as a skater but as a person are there are there any experiences when you were when you were skating with Bones Brigade that really stand out for you as kind of some of the most meaningful oh sure like um there's, there's hundreds of them the Bones Brigade quote unquote the Bones Brigade really is narrowed down to what's called the class of 79 so I equate it like this, that the class of 79 was the original Bones Brigade team. Um, and then as time went on, things changed. Like, for example, I mentioned Lance Mountain. We love Lance. You know, when I say that, the we is Mike McGill, Stevie Cavalier, all of us on the Bones Brigade that were really in the contest of the Gold Cup series because, you know, it was over like the course of six months that these contests took place. I would, you know, be in high school at that point, would fly back, you know, to school, and then, you know, a couple months later, go for a weekend or something, you know, but we would spend the summer kind of cultivating where these parks were going to be so we could get used to them. I believe that's how the situation went, but, um, you know, so we, we developed really close relationships and saw talent in people that we kind of like wanted Stacy to put these guys on the team, and it didn't really come to fruition because... Stacy didn't want to have too many people that were part of this thing that was already building speed and momentum. But we always looked at it differently. It's like, you know, you got to... So you wanted to keep it more of a tight-knit group. Was there a a point where um, you felt like you were going to stay with Bones Brigade? Was there a point where you started to think about other things that you were... The, re- the reality is, and everybody at this era would probably describe it the same way, we were getting so much out of skateboarding at this point as, as young teenage, well, you know, pretty much almost the end of our teenage years, you know, 16 is really kind of where it started to fade for me. And it wasn't that skateboarding faded for me. What faded for me is that it started happening like rapidly. All the skate parks that we rode were being closed. So I'll go back to Mike Jeslowski just for one second because as a great freestyler, that freestyle element is where I started in skateboarding. So I, after college, you know, like skateboarding was coming back even stronger, but it wasn't, 
the, the vertical aspect or the parks that were opening, it was street skateboarding. So all the stuff that Rodney Mullen's work started to inspire, you know, with just the street skating, with doing some of those maneuvers that came out of freestyling, or was it? it, it it's that, you know, you know, Rodney Mullen is, since he freestyles, people don't talk about him as much, but like, I mean, he's invented like billions of tricks, but because he freestyles, you don't look at it and like, because you don't see many people do it. But it was, I think, when you look at what he was doing in 1981, 82, it's like the foundation of what everybody's doing now. What everybody's doing now. And, and not only was it like that, here's, here's a, you know, a real true story. Rodney would come to Del Mar Skate Park when we're all skateboarding, and, you know, and all of a sudden Rodney would be freestyling on the freestyle area, and we would stop what we were doing, go watch Rodney, and like, geez, like the guy's just blowing me away. But after we watch him for a little while, I'll be like, okay, now let's go back and skate the pool. Because <laughs> we, we just saw no longer the interest in that element of skateboarding. But that element of skateboarding is key to how skateboarding is today. So I have a much broader sense of, of, of appreciation for what took place that I didn't as, as you know, a store owner, for example. I looked at street skating and like, you know, how can kids be skating on a curb for, for nine hours? And I didn't see the same aspect that I had when I was 15 or 13 that those same kids getting out of a curb that I got out of a skateboard park. So I think that's a key fundamental thing. So things start to change in terms of what where skateboarding is going. Is going. Um, Coming back to you and your trajectory there there's a point where you decide you're you're going to go to college it was like december i think i get a phone call i can't I can't remember who it was he goes dude the door at the skate park's locked i'm like what do you mean like cherry hills locked like the doors were just sealed locked the skate park closed and it was at the same exact time that i was getting ready for college so that spring we built a ramp in my backyard glennie friedman came down took pictures at it and then that fall, I went to college, and by that winter, my dad had chopped down the ramp and it was gone. And skateboarding changed entirely because there wasn't those skate parks. And the skate parks that were around, for example, right here in Pennsylvania, there was a skate park called Magic Skate Park up in Reading, in Jacksonwald, right outside of Reading, Exeter area. And I think it was open at the same exact time that Cherry Hill was open, but it was so bad. It was like worse than PSP. But since it was an outdoor skate park and the real estate wasn't valuable, it remained for years as like a, you know, a skate spot for people all over. So, so skateboarding flourished, I shouldn't say flourished, skateboarding had pockets of energy that it survived. survived. It survived. And, and the way it survived kind of now to me seemed far. And another reason I got out of skateboarding is the backyard ramp became more influential in skateboarding because there wasn't skate parks, but it allowed people, the vertical aspect of skateboarding was still going because of these half pipes being built. You have a hiatus from skateboarding for, you know, I, I think you said about 20 years where you, you don't skate. I'm not afraid to be, be honest. And one of the reasons I took a hiatus is that the half pipe created no creativity except tricks. So it's, they call it a swing set you know, let's go ride the swing set. And I still ride the swing set today, but I kind of fight myself to just, because as I get older, it's harder to keep, you know, 
your progression goes down and you just want to keep you know status quo with where you are so so you feel most comfortable in that terrain i still feel most comfortable riding on vert it's where my style it's where my 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 joy in skateboarding comes from i can't see myself going back so my hiatus from skateboarding what i didn't realize is that first of all some of the parks that were being developed were is good if not better than cherry hill so for about 20 years i didn't really skateboard very much i you know maybe cruise here and there uh, I go to a mini ramp here and there, but I didn't find myself really immersed in it. It was more like old friends like Chuck Trees, for example, hey, or, or Tom Gorholsky, you know, when I was in college, said, you have to come Cedar Crest, this ramp down in Virginia. So we would go down for a weekend. So I had, you know, some experiences, but I wasn't skateboarding like I skateboarded back back then. And then a friend of mine who's, who's shopped in my store forever, he's like, oh, I'm doing this, you know, he's a surfer. He's like, I need the exercise and it's great. So we would go over and skate a little bit. So slowly I was getting back, but just for the fun of it. And then uh, in 2012, Vans had what's called the Vans Bolarama. Mm-hmm. And that took place in New York City at Chelsea Pier. I saw this pool and I'm like, whoa, look at this thing. And I got a chance to try it. And, you know, you was know, that the first time you'd been in a pool? First time actually really going back time? into a, a skate park pool and riding a skate park pool and How did trying that feel? to feel. It felt really awkward. It's, it's it's skateboarding is not riding a bicycle. So it's 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 hard. The timing, the balance, like you know, you don't lose it, but it's 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 a way more risky aspect just popping back into it. But there's also like this young girl when I first started skating at Chelsea, she was like 9. And her brother was like maybe five. She went on to the Olympics, Bombette Martin. She became, you know, she is like an incredible skateboarder. And I saw her she when is. she was a little teeny girl. So that's what's changed for me in skateboarding is that it's not like when I skateboarded, it was all, we were all the same demographic. We were all 13 to 16, 17 year old kids. So, so it sounds like a, a lot of what the foundation was for you in your early skating comes back to you and and you know you're 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 still skating you know Correct I'm still skateboarding and one thing I think that's fundamental for anybody in life is you need to really find something that you love and you want to you know keep for life be it tennis be it reading be it anything that you really have a passion for I don't care what it is, but find it, search it out, and somehow try and embrace it and keep it with you. And I'm so glad that I found skateboarding again. So when you think about these like really amazing skate parks like Cherry Hill that had such a big impact on you and your skating, you know that, that seems to be one of the biggest reasons why communities like Delaware County need skate parks like that if we're going to develop talent in the same way. And I just was wondering what your thoughts were about that. You know, how do communities benefit from having really good skate parks? Well, first of all, it, it, it gives a, a, a broad spectrum of individuals an opportunity to basically be artist, whatever that might be. I love um, that. And I think that's really, really key. Um, because most skate parks have banks, they have handrails, they have you know pools. There's all different ways kids can express themselves on that canvas in a skate park. That's number one. And I say kids, I, I really should take that to a different level. I am meeting more and more people who took up skateboarding, males and females in their 40s and even 50s. Just you know, I just ran into somebody up at Chelsea recently. Her daughter got into skateboarding she decided she was going to give it a shot too. She's out there skateboarding with her daughter. 
kids don't have to challenge themselves in the skate park. They need to find community within that skate park. The tricks will come if you persevere in it. And if they don't, just remember, you got to have fun. The sense I get from modern day skate parks nowadays is that they are a hub for kids to basically become who they're going to be, whatever that might be. It's like the old rec center, except that the nicer the park, you have more skilled adults there, which is not like the old rec centers of the day. Like there's a place to hang out, but you also have people in a really good skate park who are good at it, who are going to be going there right. and and be doing what they're doing, working on their own skills. Right. So it's this really interesting you know, segue into, you know, you go there as a young person, but you, you almost can watch your skills develop by watching other skaters that are really good at it. The better yeah. parks are going to attract those skaters. Right, better parks. Joey P has corrected me several times because I, I have a singularly focused, like, like I want a nice, smooth, I want, I want to see some vert in a skate park. That's, that's, my, that's my forte. But he's kind of corrected me where, I, you know, like Mary Place, it's a small little facility, but it's still attracting kids and it's still offering a place for community to develop and nurture. It's like these, these newer parks that are able to have a street skating area, you know, areas where there's ramp, but also some like a snake run or a right. beautiful bowl. And these are generally bigger parks, but there's something for everybody there. So being part of the coalition, one of the parks I skateboarded out um, in, in California is called Poods in, in um, Encinitas. And uh, I didn't realize that it's an ADA compliant skate park. Um, and it, it covers like a really massive area, but it's really smartly designed because it's in like a normal playground area that has, you know, different forms of recreation, like a dog park. And I think there's maybe Frisbee golf or something. But um, the skate park itself is really smartly laid out and it's, it's beautiful concrete and they have an upper plaza area for street skating and whatnot that covers a tremendous out of area. But what makes it ADA compliant, which I didn't even know when I visited, is the fact that like you can park your car and get on your wheelchair and go out and do it. But they also built a pool there, a cloverleaf pool that's lower set, so it's not part of like the normal, you have to, you, you, get, you have to leave this street course actually to get to that park, which is probably a smart design because it doesn't have kids who aren't ready for that element just going over to it and you know, dropping in and maybe having a, you know, you got stuck in there, not being able to get out. Right. You got to learn the basics to, you know, to, 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 to get to where you want to be. And I think back, I said that earlier, I had kids, you know, they get frustrated with skateboarding because they're not learning to have fun. It's hard. Right. It's a hard sport. It's difficult. It takes a lot of coordination, a lot of effort. Um, but a park like that that you described where it has that ADA accessibility, this was something that I talked about with um, Tony Coelho when I did the interview with him. And he talked about with you know, they were creating accommodations for people with disabilities. But, you know, the the benefit that, that wasn't necessarily intended, but really truly was a benefit is that those accommodations helped everybody. Right. And it seems like, you know, that some of those accommodations for ADA accessibility in skate parks also benefit younger skaters who might be looking to, you know, just try it out. Or as you're saying, even some of these adults that are kind of new to it, but it allows for areas of, it, of it, growth. It does a couple things. First of all, I'll, I'll give you my experience. Uh, I went to the California training facility uh, when I was out in California once and that's built by California skate parks. It's really where pros are supposed to come and train. But it is, you know, several days a week. It's open to the public and whatnot. And 
So um, I'm part of this this group called the Death Racers. Uh, it's uh, my friend Doug Marker. Yes, yeah. Death Racers. <laughs> Death, Mar- uh, Doug Marker started it. He's been a cohort of mine. Like you know, for a while during the pandemic, they didn't have the Elgato anymore. Me and him got together and created instead of the Gold Cup, we created the Old Cup. <laughs> To keep what Eddie had developed, all this camaraderie of all of us coming back and, you know, we call it the family to be part of the family. But anyway, great names. This this one guy, he's riding at the California, you know, training facility. I just keep noticing every time he's dropping in, he's getting a little bit higher, a little bit higher. And I'm like, wow, you know, so I go up and like, dude, you're getting a little bit higher each time, man. That's really great. He goes, yeah, I know. I'm blind. And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, I'm I'm legally blind. I, I, you know, I I can't see you. I can see shadows and whatnot, but I, I can't see you. I'm like, that's incredible. So to me, you know, when I look at ADA, it, it sets apart something because, you know, for example, Tony Hawk on Birdhouse has, I forget his name, but he has, you know, somebody who has no legs, you know, riding for him. And mm-hmm. I see I see a lot of kids now in skateboarding that have differences. They're, they're, you know, they may not have legs. They may not be able to see. They may not have arms. But... And skateboarding is accessible to them. Not only is it, it, it accessible, but it's an accepting culture. I, I think to begin with so important because because we we all want to see everybody progress and yeah kids will get bummed that somebody else picked up a trick sooner but it it makes them want to progress it keeps pushing it keeps a fire on the stove to say you can do this too and there's always encouragement I think about those kids without legs who I'm watching do incredible incredible stuff that's amazing that I don't know other sports that give them the same opportunity. And that's that goes back to why I say this is an art form. How you do it is how you do it. It's not set in blood. This sport is constantly progressing, or this art form is constantly progressing. As you know, a veteran skater, you really summarize so beautifully what the skate park offers community and, and creating these ADA accessible spaces and how we have to think more broadly going forward in terms of who's going to access this right. space. I, I, one of my f- local skate parks that I go to often is, is Lansdale, and it's been there for two and a half years now. And I didn't even know the skate park was being built. And I was like, wow, you know, it's so close to my house. I didn't even know this was happening. And when it first opened, I was like amazed, first of all, because it, it has a bowl. It has a street area. It's fairly small. It's only like around 6,000 square feet, but it has some really good elements in it. And it's set in, a, in a, a park area that has a community swimming pool. It also has on all three, four sides of it, basically, residential homes. So there was a lot, a lot of no-sayers that didn't want this in their backyard. Not in my backyard, Nimbus. Not in my backyard, Syndrome. There's no way we want a skate park in our, in our backyard. And the perspective of those homeowners that I was going to devalue their, the value of their homes, it's going to be, you know, debauchery and just, you know, young kids hanging out. It's going to be a mess and, and it's going to be a lot of noise. And now that the skate park's been there two and a half years, the things that I'm most impressed with is that how the kids themselves have made that community because it wasn't there before. And people from all over come there from, you know, a lot of different people from all over the tri-state area go to that skate park just to try it maybe once or maybe be a regular there now if they have a vehicle to get there. Um, But also that there's no graffiti in it. There's never trash in it either. I walk around that skate park and I'm amazed. It's really clean. Yeah, it's really clean. So this is two and a half years later that 
Not only that, what impressed the community that surrounds that skate park, a lot of those no-sayers are now for the skate park because what they saw in the wintertime especially was guys older and younger getting into those bowls and shoveling them out in the cold weather so they could do their art and go back and skateboard and actually clean out the bowls. And they were really impressed by that because the tennis courts and the basketball courts, no one's clearing them up. Snow off. covered. Snow covered <laughs> until it melts. And then probably maybe a few more months because no one's thinking about playing mm -hmm. basketball. It's a seasonal sport. Skateboarding is that art form that you want to do it all the time. I really highly recommend that if you're in a community where there's a skate park nearby, go check it out. You don't need to skateboard. Just go check it out. See what the vibe offers you. See what you get out of it. No matter what age or what sex or what you know where you're from, go check it out and see what skateboarding is all about. Such great advice. All right. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story with us. It was it, a good one. It was all my pleasure. Um, I love being part of the coalition. I've really appreciated our friendship, and I look forward to many, many, many years ahead. Thank you so much, Erin. You're welcome. Thank you for being here. If you want to find out more about the mission of the Delco Skate Park Coalition, or if you'd like to be a part of our podcast, go to www.skatedelco.org. And thanks for listening.